This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, September 20th. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. The civil war in Syria has killed over 100,000 civilians and displaced millions more and produced a historic migrant crisis that affects Europe to this day. But the situation could get even worse if things go wrong in Idlib, a city in eastern Syria. We'll discuss the situation there with Luke Coffey of the Heritage Foundation. Plus, one Democratic senator has some hard words for every man in America. We'll discuss. But first, we'll cover a few of the top headlines. President Donald Trump weighed in on the Kavanaugh case Wednesday, saying this to reporters. Look, if she shows up and makes a credible showing... That'll be very interesting, and we'll have to make a decision. But I can only say this. He is such an outstanding man. Very hard for me to imagine that anything happens. Well, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley, continues to hold out an invitation for Christine Ford to testify. In a series of tweets on Wednesday, he said, quote, We're going to continue to try to hear from Dr. Ford in any format she's comfortable with open session slash closed session slash private staff interviews slash public staff interviews because her information is very important, end quote. He also said there's no need for an FBI investigation. Ford is refusing to testify before the committee until the FBI has investigated the matter. In a tweet Wednesday, Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine and perceived as a key vote on the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, called for his accuser, Christine Blasley Ford, to appear before the Senate. Quote, I hope that Dr. Ford will reconsider and testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday. It is my understanding that the committee has offered to hold either a public or a private session, whichever would make her more comfortable, Collins tweeted. On Tuesday night, Senator Jeff Flake similarly called on Ford, tweeting, When Dr. Ford came forward, I said that her voice should be heard and asked the Judiciary Committee to delay its vote on Judge Kavanaugh. It did so. I now implore Dr. Ford to accept the invitation for Monday in a public or private setting. The committee should hear her voice. California Senator Kamala Harris is squarely getting behind Dr. Ford and her request for an investigation. She tweeted on Tuesday, quote, I support Dr. Blasey Ford's request for an FBI background investigation before a hearing. She should not be bullied into participating in a biased process, and we should not rush forward before facts are gathered. Since coming forward, Christine Blasey Ford has been subject to severe harassment, according to her lawyers. In a letter sent Tuesday to Senator Chuck Grassley, Ford's lawyers wrote, She has been the target of vicious harassment and even death threats. As a result of these kind of threats, her family was forced to relocate out of their home. Her email has been hacked and she has been impersonated online. End quote. A GoFundMe set up to help fund security costs for her has raised over $100,000 so far. Well, as Democrats get behind Ford, another woman who accused a Democrat of physical abuse says her treatment from Democrats was quite different. Darren Monahan accused her former boyfriend, Democratic Congressman Keith Ellison, of physical assault earlier this year. She says Democrats have not stood by her. In a Monday tweet, she said that despite providing plenty of evidence for her claims, she was smeared, threatened, isolated from her own party. Ellison, who is now deputy chair of the Democratic National Committee, has denied those assault claims. In remarks to reporters Wednesday, President Trump again had harsh words for Attorney General Jeff Sessions. I'm disappointed in the Attorney General for numerous reasons. In an interview with Hill TV this week, Trump focused on Sessions' decision to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, saying... 
Quote, he gets in and probably because of the experience that he had going through the nominating when somebody asked him the first question about Hillary Clinton or something, he said, I recuse myself, I recuse myself. And now it turned out he didn't have to recuse himself. Earlier this year, as Hill TV noted, Sessions told a Senate committee, quote, I recuse myself not because of any asserted wrongdoing on my part during the campaign, but because a Department of Justice regulation required it. Well, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has pledged to permanently abolish key missile facilities in his country and allow foreign experts to inspect. The announcement drew praise from President Trump, but some experts remain concerned North Korea is dragging the U.S. along and weakening its resolve. After Kim made the announcement, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said the U.S. is prepared to restart negotiations with North Korea immediately and he invited North Korea's foreign minister to meet with him next week. Pompeo said the U.S. aims to seek complete denuclearization in North Korea by January 2021. An analysis by the Center for Immigration Studies of 2017 census data finds that plenty of Americans don't speak English at home. Instead, quote, in 2017, a record 66.6 million U.S. residents, native-born, legal immigrants, and illegal immigrants, ages five and older, spoke a language other than English at home. The number has more than doubled since 1990 and almost tripled since 1980. Well, up next, we'll talk to Luke Coffey about the dire situation in Idlib, Syria. Liberals have pretty much cornered the market on 101-style podcasts that break down tough policy issues in the news. Until now. Did you know that every week, Heritage Explains intermingles personal stories, news clips, and facts from Heritage experts to help explain some of today's hardest issues from a conservative perspective? Look for Heritage Explains on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as the civil war in Syria continues to rage, one city in eastern Syria is collecting millions of refugees. The city is Idlib, and given the right circumstances, it could produce the region's next migrant crisis. Joining us now to discuss is Luke Coffey, director of the Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. Luke, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. So, Luke, there hasn't been a ton of news coverage about Idlib. Uh, Can you give us just a lay of the land? What, What exactly is happening there? That's actually um, absolutely right. Uh, While the U.S. has been focused on northeastern Syria, where the U.S. troops are partnering with the Syrian Kurds, and focus has been also with the Turks in northern Syria, not much attention has been paid to Idlib at all. Idlib, um, as you mentioned, is a a, capital city of a province that's also called Idlib. And over the past year, year and a half, The region has been used as a a dumping ground of sorts for civilians who are fleeing other war zones inside Syria. So, for example, names that your listeners would have heard over the past 12 to 18 months, Aleppo, Homs, uh, for example, these are big eastern Ghouta. These are big cities where deals were brokered between the rebels that were fighting there and the and the Assad regime to allow civilians to transit safely um, out of Aleppo, for example, to Idlib. The problem is, um, well, there are a couple of problems. The first one is those who took advantage of the uh, safe uh, passage to Idlib um, included 
some pretty bad, nefarious groups, uh, Al-Qaeda-linked organizations, other terrorists. So it just was always civilians that took advantage of this. And then the second problem is uh, how this has built up this huge internally displaced um, group of people that are away from their homes and who are stuck in Idlib with nowhere to go. So you mentioned uh, that some of the people there um, are terrorist linked. Yes. Should people in the United States be worried about terrorism attacks coming out of this region or are they more focused on uh, the area that they're in? Well, for sure, um, we should be concerned. And even uh, the State Department has expressed its concerns about this. Um, while the most of the international community's attention has been on ISIS, and rightfully so, it's allowed the region in Idlib and around Idlib to become this incubator of sorts for other extremist groups. Now, you do have a full spectrum of fighters in Idlib, from the uh, so-called moderates, which even by our definition today, they wouldn't seem very moderate, but relatively speaking, they are moderate rebels, to the more extremist Al-Qaeda-linked groups, groups that share an I- same ideology as ISIS, for example. But to put it into context, they, anticipate, they, they estimate that there are about um, 60,000 or so uh, rebel fighters, opposition fighters in Idlib, and about half of them are linked to Al-Qaeda-like groups. So there are quite a few, um, quite a few there. Well, as we've seen, uh, really going back throughout the whole Syrian civil war, it's really been an intersection of foreign powers. You've had Russia involved, Turkey, uh, of course, the United States to an extent. Um, and just this week, we've seen a, a new deal uh, between struck between Turkey and Russia that Turkey will add more troops to Idlib. Tell us about that deal and why why is Turkey, what interest do they have in sending their own troops into Idlib? And I would add to your list before I answer that question, uh, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Yep. These countries have been um, involved in some way or another uh, in, inside Syria, often making the situation a lot worse than what it was before. Um, but why Turkey's concerned with this is well, Turkey and Russia are sort of at odds with one another in Syria. You know, we have this idea that under President Erdogan, the president of Turkey, and President Putin, the president of Russia, there's been this newfound rapprochement between the two countries. But in Syria, there's, there is very much a divide on how to handle the situation. Uh, president Erdogan wants Assad gone. President Putin wants Assad to remain. Idlib is the latest uh, focus of, um, of competition and animosities and, and conflict between the two countries. Uh, Russia wants uh, to restore Assad's control over the region, and they want to use military force to do this. But Turkey is concerned about what this could mean for refugees and the humanitarian crisis that could come from Idlib. Remember, Turkey already has over 4 million, some estimates say 5 million Syrian refugees inside Turkey. And they provide housing, education, health care for these refugees. Um, There are refugees that, um, you know, were were born um, in in, in Turkey from Syrian parents who are now starting elementary school. You know, they, they, they've become part of Turkish society. And they don't want any more. And it's understandable why they wouldn't want any more. And also the European Union is concerned because they brokered a deal with Turkey to, they would give Turkey some financial assistance and everything else, and then Turkey would hold on to all of these refugees so they don't continue on 
through Greece, through the Balkans, into Central and Eastern Europe, to Germany, Sweden, and France. Uh, so the the European Union is also concerned that if these uh, if an attack happens in Idlib, where are these uh, three three and a half million people going to go? It's going to be Turkey, and it's going to be Europe. Right. So on that, uh, since yeah, Europe and uh, I guess Turkey as well are still reeling from the last refugee um, groups from Syria. What is the long-term prospect for Idlib? I mean, this doesn't seem very tenable as a long-term solution, and yet you're saying that all these political powers are doing whatever they can to avoid having to house all these refugees. Well, the latest is an agreement by Turkey and Russia that has created a buffer zone um, around Idlib and a demilitarized zone to separate the uh, rebel and opposition fighters that are in Idlib away from the Russian and Syrian military forces. And then the idea is that over time, um, this this area will slowly transition back under the control of Assad. And during that time, Turkey will do everything it can to try to disarm and take care of the terrorists and the extremists um, themselves. Uh, whenever you make a deal like this with Russia, you, you're probably going to assume that they're not going to live up to their side of the bargain. Um, nothing in recent history suggest, will suggest otherwise when dealing with Russia, whether it's ceasefires in Georgia that they haven't lived up to, ceasefires in Ukraine that they haven't lived up to, and also in ceasefires in Syria itself. Uh, the, the Idlib is what is called a de-escalation zone. And, and about a year ago, there were four de-escalation zones that were agreed in Kazakhstan, it's called the Astana process. Astana is the capital of Kazakhstan, and it was agreed in the city between Iran, Turkey, and Russia. There would be four de-escalation zones, essentially a ceasefire. And since then, Russia and Syria has attacked and taken back three of these four. Idlib is the remaining one. That's why all these internally displaced people are in Idlib, because they came from these other areas that were part of the so-called de-escalation zones. So there's nothing in recent history that suggests that Russia can be a trustworthy partner in all of this. So it, it remains to be seen uh, how Turkey will react if indeed Russia does not live up to its side of the bargain. If there's like one, if there's one thing that could provoke the next migrant crisis from Idlib, what would that be? A full-on um, ground assault by Assad, by Syrian, Russian, and Iranian forces. We haven't talked much about Iran today, but they are—they have tens of thousands of militia members inside Syria. Um, they've organized Hezbollah to fight inside Syria, and they've done a lot of Assad's dirty work. Uh, Russia has provided a lot of the air force capability, the airstrikes, where Iran has provided a lot of the ground troops doing the, the really dirty work. So if, if you had a full-on ground assault in Idlib— um, that didn't take in consideration civilian casualties and the use of chemical weapons, for example, that would lead to a huge uh, refugee crisis, I think. To what extent can the U.S. play a role? Like, What can the U.S. do to try to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, the U.S. is actually very limited in what it can do and what it wants to do um, in Idlib. The U.S. focus in Syria is mainly with the Syrian Kurds defeating ISIS in, in northeastern Syria. Um, we don't have a, a directly. We don't have a dog in the fight in Idlib. Uh, we've warned warned both sides to be very careful in how they proceed. We've we've seen messages come from um, the White House that uh, that uh, President Assad and Russia should uh, tread very carefully in Idlib. 
But unless chemical weapons are used, I don't think the U.S. is going to do much of anything. And I'm not sure exactly what the U.S. could actually do in practice unless you start talking about deploying tens of thousands of U.S. troops to defend Idlib. And then when you consider some of the really bad people who are defending Idlib, you don't know if, you know, that doesn't really make for a, a sound policy. So it's very tragic it's, and it's unfortunate. But what the U.S. can do, I think, is if there is a humanitarian crisis, another refugee crisis because of Idlib, provide a lot of support to Jordan, to Turkey, to Lebanon, to the countries in the region who are hosting millions of refugees to help them handle this burden so it doesn't further strain our allies in Europe. All right. Well, Luke Coffey, thanks so much for coming in and explaining that for us. Uh, Thank you. Want to learn how to podcast from some of the best in the business? Then you'll want to register for the Leadership Institute's Conservative Podcasting School on October 15th and 16th in Arlington, Virginia. The Heritage Foundation and The Daily Signal are proud sponsors of this event. Sign up today at leadershipinstitute.org. And as a listener of this podcast, you can get $10 off. Just use Book Club as the promo code. Can't make it in person? The training will also be streamed live. Again, it's leadershipinstitute.org. Senator Maisie Hirono, Democrat of Hawaii, didn't mince words in remarks to reporters Tuesday. Of course it helps that there are women on that committee, but you know what? I expect the men in this country and the men in this committee, and many of them, believe me, because we all signed on to this letter to uh, demand an FBI investigation, but really, guess who's perpetuating all of these kinds of actions? It's the men in this country, and I just want to say to the men in this country, just shut up and step up. Do the right thing for a change. Okay, you can see I'm a little upset by this, you know, the unfairness of it. Well, she made similar remarks in an interview with CNN Wednesday. So, Daniel, do you think you and all men should shut up? Yes. In fact, I'm going to shut up for the rest of this episode. <laughs> I'm just going to talk to myself. Uh, cool. So this is no, now the Kate Tranko podcast. No, no, no. Look, so I get why she's frustrated and a lot of people are frustrated with the situation in general. It's been a pretty depressing year, two years now. I don't can't remember how long this has been going on. You know, since, since the Harvey Weinstein thing, all of these things coming out about men in power. So, like, I get that. I think it's completely un, uh, unjust to just impose all of that on Kavanaugh right now. Um, as as Senator Lindsey Graham said, it's kind of a drive-by shooting. But I so I don't quite get what she means by shut up because I thought you know men were supposed to be speaking up about. Um, these kinds of things happening. I Maybe she just mixed her words up. She did say men need to step up, but I'm not quite sure what she wants from someone like me at this very moment. Uh, well, I assume she means don't say anything to put, to draw any any kind of cl- you know doubt upon the testimony given by Dr. Ford, if she in fact gives testimony. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what Senator Hirono meant, but I mean, I think there's two things. One, this sort of goes along with the left's identity politics and collective guilt. It's not so much that they're focused on the men who have done these heinous, horrible acts of um, rape or sexual harassment or something in between, but they're focused on all men, which I don't think is helpful or good. We need to root out the bad guys, not all guys. And 
I mean, secondly, I think that good men have a huge role to play here. I remember um, a friend of mine on social media mentioned around the time of the first Me Too that her husband, who used to be in the military, used to, when guys would get into quote unquote locker room talk and be saying this stuff, he would kind of say something to jerk them out of it and sort of shame them and be like, how are, like, why are you talking about women this way? And I think that if good guys say, like, hey, no, this is not okay that that girl was super drunk and you're not sure if she consented or not when you slept with her. Like, that's not cool. That's horrible. Like, there is such an important role for men to play here to hold other men accountable in maybe a way that women can't. No, I think it's very true. I think the same mindset that is locker room talk, so to speak, that same mindset is what produces this kind of assault. Um, and people don't draw that line clearly. They say, oh, it's just for the locker room. But no, I think it's, there's totally a place for men to call other men out, um, especially when when they're exhibiting the kind of mentality and, beha- and certainly behavior that produces this. Um, I guess I just don't know what to make of this particular senator <laughs> saying that men well, need to shut up. But I mean, I think it's something like, you know, yeah, I, I really do think it goes back to the identity politics, but I think it's a mistake yeah. because it's like, yeah, nail the people who are doing this by all means. And of course, you know, we had an accusation a few weeks ago of statutory rape against a woman, Asia Argento. Uh, I believe she's denying it. But, you know, should all women have shut up in that situation? Um, you know, th- this can go both ways. I don't think collective guilt is the answer. Um, I think also, too, it's like really... There are bad guys for sure, um, but I think it's insulting to all guys to go around saying, like, all of you are akin to, you know, rapists. I mean, that's insane. Anyway, there's no good way for you to respond to that. So, Probably a good place to leave it for today. Well, thank you for listening to the Daily Signal podcast today, brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a rating, even if you're a man, on iTunes to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.